Father, we long to hear your voice. We long to comprehend the incomprehensible gift that you've given to us. We long not just to comprehend, but to let it sink deep into our hearts and let it change our hearts to allow you to be born in us. Father, we pray that you would speak through your word into our hearts in ways that are precious and powerful and that give us a deeper love for you. I pray this because of Jesus and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can imagine what it was like as they sat there talking to each other. I mean, what do you do talking to each other all night long? There's a lot of different things that you can talk about. Some of you work on the night shift at the hospital, and so you know how it goes when things are a little slow and you have to have that conversation with that person across the desk or wherever you're at. Well, as they were talking, I just imagine where the conversation began to go. They began to talk about the future and and would things ever change and and would the oppressive regime ever be dealt with? What was going to happen? How would things change? Surely they had to change. Surely this could get better. And then I imagine that they began to pray together and to actually ask that God would do something to rescue them because they desperately needed help. They recognized that they didn't have what it took to get out of the situation that they were in. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2 to pick up the story with me. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. We saw the first few verses of Luke last week, and we looked at how God brought Mary and Joseph all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. A journey of 70 to 80 miles fraught with danger that you don't want to do when you're nine months pregnant. I talked about walking for nine months while you're walking for 70 miles while you're nine months pregnant. It doesn't seem very pleasant uh, based on what I'm witnessing in my own life. My wife is a hero, by the way. I call her a shero. Luke chapter 2, okay? Now hopefully you found it there. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, it says this. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. This is where they reside. They don't have a house per se. They don't have a, a mansion that they live in. But their day in and day out experience is there with sheep in the fields. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. Do you find it fascinating how many times angels show up in the Christmas narrative? You remember how it all starts. What's the first story in Luke chapter 1? Does anybody know? The angel comes not to Mary first, but she does come to Mary. You're right. Right before Mary. Before Elizabeth. It doesn't come to Elizabeth. But it comes to Zachariah. Right? The priest, he's there officiating in the temple when all of a sudden he's afraid because there is an angel there in the sanctuary as he's offering up the incense on the altar. Then, what do we say? Mary receives a a, a visit from an angel. Then, who else receives a, a, a visit from an angel? 
Joseph, in a dream, he has an angel appear to him. Can you see the excitement that's going on? The heavenly universe is just bursting with excitement over what is happening. They're coming on the scene. Angels are appearing. Well, one angel in particular, Gabriel, the most important angel, keeps coming to visit Judea. Behold, verse 9 continues, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. What does this tell us? Who is this angel? Gabriel, it doesn't say that in this verse, but it probably is Gabriel. But what does it say about this angel? The angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. This is pushing us back to the Old Testament, to Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, saying, hey, this is the angel of the I am, the great I am. He's appearing in his glory, the glory of who is shining around the shepherds? The glory of God, the glory of the Lord is shining around them. And they are greatly afraid by this. But the angel quickly comforts them, verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why? Why? Not to be afraid. I believe that why the shepherd shouldn't be afraid is the same reason that you and I, living in 2018, on the cusp of 2019, also need not be afraid. The reason that shepherds under an oppressive Roman regime didn't need to be afraid is the same reason that you and I, in the midst of a world of chaos with shutdown governments and all kinds of craziness in the news, earthquakes and hurricanes and fires like we've never seen before, need not be afraid. And that is this. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now this is really fascinating. Who does it say this Savior is? Christ the Lord. Now we know, where is Jesus at this point in time? Jesus is laying in a manger, wrapped in swatting clothes. He's in a stinking feeding trough there where animals were fed. He's in the most despicable of places for a baby to be laid. This past week, they were telling us about when our twins come, how they're going to do it. They'll probably have us in the operating room, and they're going to have, I mean, the people, they're going to have one nurse for each of our babies. They're going to have one nurse for Leah. They're going to have... uh, an anesthesiologist, a respiratory therapist. They're going to have, at least this is the plan, I, I understand. They're going to have the, the OB doctor there. Maybe they'll have, well, it depends on if we're a twin. If it, hopefully it won't be a NICU nurse will be there, even though we love what you do, NICU nurses. But that's not the way it was for baby Jesus. Jesus didn't have all that. Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. But what does the angel call him? Jesus Christ, that's the anointed one, the Messiah, but Jesus Christ, the the Lord. What angel just came to them? Whose angel came? The Lord. Whose glory just shone around them? 
The Lord's glory just shone around them. The baby who's born in a manger is way bigger than what they realize. The baby who's born in a manger who couldn't find a place to be born in the inn. I mean, last week we saw that the God of the universe was able to move on Caesar Augustus to have the entire world be registered and taxed in order to move Mary and Joseph 70 miles to get to Bethlehem. And yet God can't find them a room in the inn? Or is God up to something? Does God know what he's doing? Does God have a purpose in this? Is God being intentional about where baby Jesus is being born? Or is this just some accident, some crazy thing that happened? Well, I find it very fascinating to notice the language that is used here by the angel. He calls Jesus a Savior. So first of all, what does it mean that a Savior is being brought to you? You need saving, right? If you have a Savior coming, it means you're lost. So the first thing that tells us is that somebody's lost and that he is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. Were the people looking for a Messiah? Were they looking for a Savior? Recently, I got to travel to Israel this past summer, and I've showed you some different pictures. Now, the first day that I was there, I woke up early in the morning, got to go to the beach, and I thought that that might be the last time we spent at the beach. But then, thankfully, we got on a bus, and we went further north, and we went to an even more beautiful place. And I was thinking, man, Israel... I want to move here or something. This is a beautiful place. It's almost like Pismo Beach or something. Now, we went to this place uh, where there are some amazing things. I didn't show you a picture here. There's this massive stadium that was built by Herod the Great, uh, like something that you would imagine Christians getting eaten by lions in. But here you'll notice that out on the end there is where Herod the Great actually built one of his many palaces that were built throughout the land of Israel. He built these palaces so that he could live, well, partially so that people would see his greatness, but also partially so that he could move from one to another and nobody would know where he was at because people didn't like him very much and he didn't want to get assassinated. So they would never know which of his massive mansions he was in. But this one, can you see out on the far left where there's water breaking over something? He built this palace actually out on the water that was just, so you see out there on that rock, I'll put here another picture there for you. This is where it actually was built, right out there on the very surface of the Mediterranean Ocean. This guy didn't live like a shepherd. This guy wasn't out in, in fields watching sheep. He was living in a mansion that was, you look out, and he had this pool that was a part of it, but then you look out, and there's the Mediterranean Ocean right there uh, all around your house because it was, it was actually jutted out into the Mediterranean Ocean. But he built this city, and he did something very fascinating. He actually made it into a harbor. Naturally, this place is not a good harbor. But this is a picture I took of actually where the harbor is. And he, in order to make this harbor, he did some amazing engineering feats. What they think that he did was he took out these, built these massive frameworks and took out something like 
uh, he sunk these rocks out there in order to make this massive breakwater. And they're not really sure how he did it. In fact, this was the biggest man-made harbor that was made to date. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. That's why they call him Herod the Great, because he would build these massive and beautiful and incredible places. But guess what he named this port? Guess what he named this city that he built? He named it Caesarea Maritima. Why Caesarea? Caesarea because he was naming it after Caesar Augustus. The one that we talked about last week. You remember Caesar Augustus who ended up taking over the role of emperor. He named it after Caesar Augustus. I find this to be very fascinating because not only did he make a harbor there, but do you see that little red circle up in the left-hand side? There he built this massive temple, one of many temples that he built, but this one specifically and a few others were dedicated. Can you guess who they were dedicated to? Caesar Augustus. They were temples actually for Augustus to be worshipped. And this is a quote-unquote Jewish king who's, who's placed in authority over this land. He's the one who, who builds the massive temple mount, who, who rebuilds the temple and makes it so beautiful. Who, the Jews uh, had a, a mixed relationship with him. But he builds this massive temple here and then also in Caesarea Philippi. And another place, he builds temples specifically for the worship of an emperor. And you remember, we talked about the emperor last week and some of the terms that he used. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But this is a picture of what it may have looked like, the temples that he built. They were modeled somewhat similar to the temple that was in Jerusalem. How would you feel if you're a Jew? And you don't like the Romans, You feel like they're this heathen, oppressive power that is unfairly taking over the promised land and you can't wait for a Messiah to come in and deliver you. And here's a guy who's setting up temples to worship this Roman emperor. I find it interesting what the angel says. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, what does he say? Good tidings of great joy. The word there is uangalizo, which is what we get evangelist from or evangelism. When we talk about that, when we share about sharing the good news, he says, don't be afraid because there is good news of great joy. And that's why you in 2018 can have confidence because there is good news. There is good news of great joy. Because there is a Savior who has been born to you, who is Christ the Lord. The fascinating thing is that the language that this angel is using is language that wouldn't have been unfamiliar to these shepherds who knew of a king who was building these temples to worship this pagan emperor. In fact, Caesar Augustus, who we talked about last week, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, but Julius Caesar adopted him. And you remember that they were having those games to celebrate Julius Caesar after his death. And during those games, suddenly there appeared in the sky a star. At least that's what they thought it was. It was a comet. And because of that, they said that that was Julius's spirit ascended 
up into heaven. And so he was obviously divine, and therefore that made Caesar Augustus take the title of Divi Filius, son of God. You have a star appearing, and then you have a king begin to say, I am the son of God. And he used this in order to take over the kingdom, in order to really be able to establish himself as king, because at the time there was three different kingdoms, and he had to fight with one of them. In fact, he was fighting with Mark Anthony. Uh, eventually, there was a battle that took place, I believe it was AD 31, or BC 31. And finally, he ends up fighting against Mark Anthony. Now, Mark Anthony was the one who King Herod at the time was subject to. And when Mark Anthony was defeated by Octavian, who later became known as Caesar Augustus, meaning Augustus meaning reverend, being to be worshipped, when King Herod found out that Mark Anthony had been beaten by Caesar Augustus, he quickly went to Caesar Augustus, and historians tell us that he actually took his crown from off his head, and he just took it, and he handed it to him. And he gave him the option to either put him to death for having been serving his enemy, or he said, I will faithfully serve you just as I served Mark Anthony. And Caesar Augustus said, well, serve me like you served Mark Anthony. He didn't want to put him to, get to death because he was a great leader. And that is why Herod began to seek to win the favor of this emperor, Caesar Augustus. He began to do everything possible. He would send bribes to him. He would send lots of money to him. He would do everything possible to get him on his side. And eventually, Caesar Augustus gave him a little city that became known as Caesarea Maritima, where Herod built this port and then built a temple to worship Caesar Augustus. Now, this wasn't all that uncommon. We find inscriptions. You find this inscription actually on a calendar in Preen, the calendar inscription of Preen, that goes through and notice some of the similarities between what the angel says about Jesus And what they were trying to say in outdoing each other in giving honor and glory to Caesar Augustus. They're trying to get his favor. They're trying to to get him to, to take care of them. They're in their different provinces and places in the Roman Empire. And they're trying to do everything possible to get on the good side of Caesar Augustus. Notice what this inscription says. Here's a translation of it. Since providence, and they believe providence was a god, since providence has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things." You see what they're calling him? They're saying, not only is he the son of God, but he has a savior that was sent by providence in order to end war. Now, Caesar Augustus began something called the Pax Romana, meaning the Roman peace, which in reality did bring an end to war. And you know how he did it? He crushed anybody who disagreed with him. That's what Roman peace was all about. And it was great for the spread of the gospel at first because they were able to have the Roman roads. They were able to have the ability to travel more freely. But this Savior came and he crushed anybody 
who disagreed with him so that he could put an end to war. The inscription goes on to say more, though. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. What do you notice here? It's talking about his birthday, first of all. And this is a calendar. And what this inscription goes on to argue is that Augustus is the reason for everything. And so we're going to rearrange the calendar. And it's actually going to start with when Augustus was born. Because then everything changed in the world. And for a long time, Roman calendars were based on when they believed that Augustus was born. So you have a birthday of, but what does it call Augustus? The god Augustus. Here you have a Roman emperor sitting on his throne, the most powerful man in the world, and people are worshiping him as a god and savior. They're doing everything possible to try to win his favor, to try to get him to love them. But notice what else it says. It's the beginning of the, what does it say there? Good tidings. That's good news. You see, this is where the Bible, we could say, this this term that is used throughout the New Testament of good news, glad tidings, the euangelion, the evangelizo, the, the evangelist message, this good tidings comes from this idea of an emperor who has accomplished salvation for an empire, who stepped in to give them salvation from their enemies to put an end to war. And so let's worship this man. Incredible, isn't it? The similarities that we find between the baby in a manger and what he was actually going to accomplish and the terminology that's used about him and what was actually used about this pagan Roman emperor. Luke 2 verse 12 continues the story because here we find entirely different what was taking place in the life of Jesus from what was taking place with King Herod. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. While the emperor was willing to receive the term Augustus, while he was willing to be worshipped and to have people give him massive gifts, while he was willing to have temples erected to him, the God of the universe chose to be born in a manger. The God of the universe chose to humble himself to the lowest spot possible on planet earth not only to come down to a world full of rebels but to humble himself to the lowliest of births why would he do that why would god do that and why would the watching universe be excited about it i believe it's because he knew where true power comes from Luke 1.52, Mary, talking about the birth of Jesus, talking through the Holy Spirit, says, He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. 
The message of the manger is that things aren't as they appear. Just like last week when we saw that though it was dark for Mary and Joseph, though the the nation felt like, why is this crazy emperor having to demonstrate his power by having us be taxed? God was using that in order to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that he could fulfill his promise that out of Bethlehem would come a Savior. And in our lives, when things get dark, when things get crazy, when things don't make sense, like babies being born in a manger, we can trust that God is maybe flipping things on their head, that he really is working all things together for good, that we really can trust him, even though everything may seem like it's out of control. That there is a God who loves us more than we can imagine. Luke 2 and verse 13 continues the story with the shepherds. And I just want you to imagine what this was like. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. Now can you think in the entire Bible of a time when more angels show up? There are visions where people see tens of thousands of angels. But here... Maybe uh, Elisha's servant who sees the, the, the chariots of fire. But here you see a multitude of angels showing up. They're excited. Heaven is rejoicing. And look at what they're saying. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Friends, this may be one of the most important verses in your Bible. If you haven't read this verse before, if you haven't taken time to really consider it, I want you to think a little bit more deeply about what is taking place here. Here you have unfallen beings, glorious, powerful beings, coming to tell us something important is happening here on the planet, and this is bringing glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Good will to men. This is what Bethlehem means to you and I. Though life may seem humbling, though life may seem ordinary, though life may seem like it's not bringing what we might expect, we can see that God is working all things together for good. He did it in the story of Mary and Joseph. He did it in such a powerful way. God brought glory in the highest, and he brought peace to this planet. Peace that a Roman emperor would come in and do through massive warfare. The God of the universe came and brought peace through humbling himself, through becoming a servant, through taking your and my affliction on himself, or like we talked about two weeks ago, by taking our heredity onto himself, by choosing to be born into a family of harlots and prostitutes of murderers, of people who had shady histories and choosing to come close to you so that he could be Emmanuel, God with you. Not just an emperor who could be worshipped in some far off place, but the God who comes very close. The God who can't stay away from this planet because he loves you too much. That's the story of Bethlehem. That's the story of who your Savior is. He loves you more than his own existence. Desire of Ages, page 48, says this, Oh, that today the human family could recognize that song, 
The declaration then made, the note then struck, will swell to the close of time and resound to the ends of the earth. Friends, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. This is a song that throughout history, as history comes to a close, will become more and more important to us. As we see God's glory in how he humbles himself, to selflessly love, to put others first, rather than being like an emperor who crushes other people, but being the one who humbles himself lower and lower to serve more and more, who brings peace and goodwill to rebels, who comes to you and me, who, though we were in the midst of sin, he comes to us as a savior and says, don't be afraid. I have good news for you. There is a Savior who is being born for you. I am Christ the Lord, and I've come to save you. John 3.17 says, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That you could have Christ born in you. That you could have new life. That's the story of Bethlehem, and that is the promise of the angels who sang. And can you just imagine? These angels have known who Jesus is. He existed with a father throughout eternity. He was the one who had created them. He was the one who had created this planet, fully God. Why are they singing? Have you ever stopped to think that before? Why are the angels so excited? Why fill heaven with all this glory? Why be so excited about this? I mean, this is risky business. I mean, you think about Satan coming to tempt Jesus. Do you think it was just fake temptations that Jesus couldn't really fall? But if Jesus could fall, if, if they were really bringing, in, if Jesus was born onto this planet in a state where he could be tempted and fall, then think about the risk. This is their commander. This is their king. This is the one who created them. This is the one that they adore and worship. And yet he's come to a filthy feeding trough to be born to people that they know who those people are. They know who you are. And yet angels are excited about it. Angels are singing glory to God in the highest. Salvation is coming to this planet. Peace on earth. Goodwill. God has goodwill towards you. He loves you. He cares about you and he wants to save you. Jesus uses this same word for goodwill here in Luke chapter 10. It's the only other place in Luke that it's used. It's only used eight other times in the New Testament. But it says here, in the hour Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. This is what's taking place for those shepherds. God passed by the the priests. He passed by the religious elite. He passed by Jerusalem. He passed by all of those to find shepherds who were looking for his appearing. And today, God is looking for people who need a Savior. Do I recognize my need this Christmas or am I just floating along? Am I just going through the motions? Do I see that I desperately need a Savior? If so, I'm in good standing with God. I'm in a good place because he loves to pour water on those who are thirsty. 
Desire of Ages, page 21, talking about the angels. It says, The angels of glory find their joy in giving. Giving love and tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy. You think about it. These angels could be in heaven rejoicing in God's presence. They could be doing anything else. Why come to the planet? Why are they so excited about showing up to Mary, to Zacharias, to Joseph? Why do these unfallen, perfect beings have so much joy in serving? Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. They bring to this dark world light from the courts above. By gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit. To bring the lost into fellowship with Christ, which is even closer than they themselves can know. Have you ever thought about that? You have the privilege, because Jesus was born as a human baby in a manger, lived a perfect life, died for your sins, was resurrected and exalted to the throne of heaven. You have the privilege of being united with God in a way that angels can never experience. And yet they're spending their life year after year ministering to you. Yet they're not just trying to grasp glory for themselves or to enjoy God's presence or to enjoy heaven. And I'm sorry, I think maybe I'm selfish because when I think about heaven and if i think if i got to be there to want to come back to this planet to the darkness here to to serve people who don't really care who who are so distracted who are thinking about absolutely everything else i don't know (laughs) would i do it and yet hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says specifically that angels take let's go actually to hebrews chapter i think i put it later in there let's go to hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 really fast, to look at what it promises us that angels ever live to do for us. Hebrews chapter 1, and chapter 1 is another great story to read at Christmas. It talks about the glories of who Jesus really is. But verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Angels live to minister to you and I. Angels selflessly serve. That is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not about us getting things. It's not about us becoming enriched. The gospel is good news because selfless love is going to triumph on this planet. It's going to triumph in the universe. And one day, every knee will bow before a God of selfless love. And join him in selfless service for the rest of eternity. The only question is, will we let him do that in our hearts? Or will we turn Christmas into being about us? Into being about getting gifts? How much I can get? How much I can become better? What is Christmas about for me? Is it about the matchless love of Jesus and letting that love be reflected in my life? Desire of Ages, page 48, goes on to say this. Humanity, uh, sorry, the one before. Heaven and earth are no wider apart today than when shepherds listen to the angels' song. Good news is angels still minister to you and I. 
humanity is still as much the object of heaven's solicitude as when common men of common occupations met angels at noonday and talked with the heavenly messengers in the vineyards and the fields. To us, in the common walks of life, heaven may be very near. Angels from the courts above will attend the steps of those who come and go at God's command. I have to admit, I don't really understand this kind of love. I don't really begin to experience this in my own life like I long to. And I'm asking that Christ would be born in my heart this Christmas. This past week, Lee and I went to Costco on our day off. And I had an experience that makes me wonder how God has the kind of love that he has. Because I recognize in my experience that I didn't have the kind of love that God has. You see, Leah being eight months pregnant with twins, I begin to have this protective feeling about her and about those babies. I want to do whatever it takes to make sure that they're okay. I want to do whatever it takes to make sure that they're provided with everything possible to have health and strength and life. So we're walking through Costco. We get to the to the front, we're about to check out, and I had been noticing something that people were so busy in Costco that they were going with their carts and basically like running each other over. I saw one guy jump because his ankles got hit by a cart. Well, we're walking along, and, and all of a sudden I see out of the corner of my eye, this guy is barreling down on my pregnant wife, and I'm not okay with that. She's my pregnant wife. Those are my two babies. You don't understand. If they fall, if something happens, I don't know what might happen. You don't do that to my pregnant wife. So I told him, I told Leah, I said, watch out. You don't want to get run over. And the guy said something smart back. And so I said, especially since you're pregnant. And I thought to myself, I don't love that guy. (laughs) And it's funny right now, but it broke my heart. Because God loves his enemies. God brings himself to a planet of enemies and places his son in the midst of danger. Far more danger than than being run over by carts or anything possible that my daughters could face. He brought his son and he laid him in a manger so that you could have eternal life. What else can't God handle in your life? What else won't God do for you? And do you want that kind of heart of love in your own heart? When it comes to being in heaven and rejoicing with the angels and worshiping Jesus throughout eternity, God is looking for people who have selfless hearts of love. And we need a Savior, not just from oppressive regimes, but we need a Savior from our selfishness, from the selfishness that puts ourselves first, from our selfishness which refuses to love our enemies. Caesar Augustus said something interesting at the end of his life. You remember how Herod the Great had done everything possible in order to win his favor. He named Caesarea Maritime 
after Caesar Augustus. He built him a temple there. He built him a temple in Caesarea Philippi. He sent money to him. He was constantly trying to win his favor. But Herod the Great was the guy who murdered all of the innocents in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was the guy who killed all of his sons who he thought were plotting to take over his throne. And Caesar Augustus saw this and he said, I would rather be Herod's pig Remember, Herod was a Jew. He didn't eat pigs. I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. After all of that trying to win his favor, all of that trying to posture himself politically in order to get the favor of this son of God, this divine being, this savior that everybody was worshiping after setting up temples to him, that very being said, I'd rather be his pig than his own son. Not a very good relationship that they had at the end of their life, but I'm thankful that Jesus is not like Caesar Augustus. And Jesus is not like Herod. He doesn't establish peace through force, but he establishes peace through selfless love, through laying down his life, through giving and serving, and he calls you and I to that same kind of life. Signs of the Times, July 30, it's beautiful. It says this, Jesus was the commander of heaven, one equal with God, and yet he condescended to lay aside his kingly crown, his royal robe, and clothed his divinity with humanity. Can you imagine being royalty and laying down your crown, laying down your authority, laying down your glory in order to save ungrateful people? Luke 2.14. Say it with me so that we remember it. It helps, it helps to repeat this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Do you have it memorized? Let's try it again. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Friends, let this sink deep into your hearts. God is telling you this 2018 that a baby has been born in a manger and so you can have peace even though things seem crazy, even though there's no room in the inn in your life. You can trust the Savior who was born in a manger for you. You can trust the God who was able to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem through an emperor's decree. You can trust him this Christmas. Desire of Ages continues, when the Son of Righteousness will arise, talking about this song, with healing in his wings, that song will be re-echoed by the voice of a great multitude. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7, tells us this song that, that one day you and I if we only trust in Jesus, we'll be singing to the King of Kings. It goes like this. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunder, and saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He's all-powerful, and he's taken over rulership of the, the universe. This baby who is born in a manger that Caesar Augustus never even knew about, this baby has become the king of the universe. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. 
This song that began at Bethlehem is going to end in a beautiful marriage ceremony where you and I will be united with God more closely than angels could possibly imagine. That's where history is trending towards. The question is, will we have the heart of Jesus, the heart that was willing to lay down royalty? Recently in Japan, there was a young girl by the name of, well, she was a princess in Japan by the name of Ayako. I have to look at it because otherwise I can't pronounce it. And she met a young man by the name of Ki. Now, Ki was a shipping execu- uh, business person. He works with shipping and he, he deals with business, uh, the business of shipping there in Japan. And Ki is a commoner. Ayako is a princess. She's royalty. But they met and they began to fall in love and they began to establish a relationship. And as this relationship began to grow, they eventually get engaged to, to be married. And the crazy thing is that royalty shouldn't marry commoners. In Japan, they're allowed to do this now, but in order to do this, the royalty has to abdicate the royalty. They have to set aside the royalty. They have to become a commoner. So on October 29, Ayako, because she loved Ki that much, went ahead with marrying this commoner because she loved him more than royalty. Because she loved the idea of a relationship with her, she went ahead and married the man of her dreams. Friends, that's what Jesus has done for you. He set aside royalty. He set it aside so that he could be one with you throughout eternity. Because he couldn't imagine heaven without you. Because being king was worthless to him if you were lost. He said, I just want a relationship with them. If only they could have the opportunity to choose me. At the end of her wedding, she said, uh, my understanding of the Japanese translation is, I am filled with joy to be married. Filled with joy. There were glad tidings of great joy in Japan as a woman laid aside her royalty. And friends, the great news of Bethlehem is that the God of the universe laid off his royal robes and his crown so that you and I could be united with royalty, so that we could be exalted to the throne, so that we could become sons and daughters of the king of the universe. Will we live lives of selfless service? Will we minister to the least of these? Will this Christmas, the story of Bethlehem, be real in our hearts? The Review and Herald, July 21, 1910, I'll close with this, says, Glory to God, In the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That song that the angels sung. This is the message his children are to proclaim by lives of unselfish endeavor. You and I are called to manger lives. You and I are called to lay down our own lives for others. You and I are called to let Christ be born in us, to live Christmas unselfishly, to unselfishly love the people around us. So what does that look like for me this Christmas? What does that look like for us 
this Christmas. And I want to suggest to you that first of all, it means accepting the goodwill that is expressed towards you in Christ. Accepting what He has fully and freely provided for you. Do you want to accept that today? Do you want to say, Jesus, I just want to acknowledge that I need a Savior and I accept what you did for me in being born in a manger. I need a Savior and I accept that gift of salvation today. And if you are accepting that, I want to challenge you to consider this Christmas how you might live like the baby in the manger. How you might choose to selflessly lay down your life. Maybe there's a neighbor who you know is not going to have any family visiting them for Christmas. And you could invite them over for Christmas dinner. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you know is sick and that they would desperately need for somebody to pray for them, to come close to them this Christmas. Maybe there's somebody living under a bridge in Paso Robles who needs for you to come by and let them know that you may not support their life choices, but you really want to express to them that there is good tidings of great joy for them, that that baby was born for them as much as for you. I don't know what exactly it'll look like, but I know that God has called us to live out the song of the angels of bringing peace and goodwill to men by living a life of unselfish service. And so if it's your desire just to ask Jesus, would you show me? Would you live out this life of unselfish service in me? I just want to invite you to stand with me as I pray. Jesus, thank you that you really are the Son of God, that you really are worthy of our worship. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill. Thank you for bringing us peace. Thank you for bringing us goodwill. Father, I pray for everyone here that you would bring peace into their families, you would bring peace into their relationships and their lives. I pray that you would Help them to know that there is goodwill towards them from heaven. That heaven is very desirous of their salvation. And Father, I pray as we stand here that you would take us as your servants to go and selflessly serve. That this week we would intentionally look for those who need to be served. Maybe it won't seem grand and glorious, but Lord, we believe because of the baby laying in a manger, that it will change the world. Father, may there be glory in the highest this Christmas as we unselfishly love the world the way that you loved it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.